this. Daniel chapter 10 is in our Bibles to make sure that this sort of thing doesn't happen to us, spiritually speaking. It's here to equip us for the spiritual challenges we can meet as we journey along the way of our Christian lives. Daniel chapter 10 is given to us to calibrate our expectations, to set our expectations so that when we are finding ourselves in a bit of an uphill struggle in our Christian lives, we won't panic, but we'll be adequately prepared. If you look down at the opening couple of verses of the chapter, we learn that it's the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now, in the first year of King Cyrus's reign, he issued a decree that the Israelites who had been in exile for close to 70 years could now return to their homeland in Israel. The Israelites, upon hearing this decree from the king, were elated. They returned in waves back to their homeland, to Israel, saying in their hearts, finally, we're going home. We'll rebuild our city, Jerusalem. We'll rebuild our lives. And after all this turmoil and difficulty as refugees in Babylon, everything's going to be good again. But as we read in the historical books of our Old Testament and in prophets like Haggai and Zechariah, it wasn't long before those who returned to Israel realized that life was going to be a lot more difficult than they had anticipated. They had limited resources. Jerusalem, their city, and their old homes were in ruins. Life was tough. And they were beginning to see that the journey of faithfulness over the long haul, it was going to be hard. The, euph the euphoria that they initially experienced soon faded when they realized the journey of faithfulness would be long and challenging. We learn that Daniel, as a civil servant, had to remain in Persia working for the king as the exiles returned. But in verse 2, we see that he's mourning and he's praying and he's fasting because of the circumstances that his people find themselves in back at Jerusalem. He's clearly heard word of what's happening and he is grieving and mourning over the difficulties his people are facing. And in this chapter, God once again comes to Daniel to give him spiritual insight and understanding with respect to some of the challenges that lay ahead for his people. And that insight, that revelation that God gives to Daniel spans chapters 10 to 12 in the book of Daniel. The revelation that is given is introduced here in chapter 10 the revelation itself is unveiled in chapter 11, and the vision is concluded 
in chapter 12. And that's going to be our pathway as we finish the book of Daniel. The revelation is summarized in our chapter, chapter 10, in verse 1, where it is spoken of as a revelation of a great conflict. What we're going to see over the next few weeks is that God is saying that faithful discipleship in a fallen world is a very real spiritual battle. There are times when things go well and we're comfortable, but there are also times when things are challenging and hard. And chapters 10 to 12 of the book of Daniel are given essentially to make sure that we are dressed and ready for war, ready for the spiritual battle that we're called to as God's people. This morning we're going to look, as I said, at this 10th chapter, the introduction to the vision of chapter 11. And this introduction is given to prepare Daniel to understand the vision. To use the language of the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, God in Daniel chapter 10 is helping Daniel and us who are reading this today to see that our battle in this world to be faithful is not just a battle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Daniel chapter 10 calls us to be dressed for spiritual battle. And it calls us to recognize that faithful discipleship in a fallen world is a battle of epic proportions. And if we just saunter into it in our shorts and sliders and a t-shirt, we're going to get creamed. We need to be ready. So as we work down through this chapter, I want to just simply draw out three lessons that are designed to prepare us for the spiritual battle to remain faithful in our journey through this fallen world. Three lessons designed to prepare us for the spiritual battle for faithfulness in a fallen world. So that we don't find ourselves, like us, up on that mountain, binion, unprepared in the middle of the journey. This chapter's here to make sure we're not spiritually unprepared for the journey we have ahead. So lesson number one. In the battle to remain faithful, we need a big vision of our commanding officer. Daniel tells us in verses 4 and 5 that after his period of prayer and fasting, he had a vision whilst standing by the Tigris River. Look at verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Now, there's some debate surrounding this vision and who it is that Daniel is seeing. 
Some believe this is a great warrior-like angel who reflects the splendor of God's glory. But others, and I'm among them, believe that this is some kind of pre-incarnate glimpse of the glory of the Son of God, what some call a Christophany, an appearance of the Son of God before His incarnation. I'm convinced that this is a glimpse of the glory of Christ here. The main reason for this is because of the description of Christ, the Son of Man, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. In Revelation 1, 13 to 16, the Apostle John gets this glimpse of the glory of Christ. And the glory of Christ that he sees there in the book of Revelation is so similar to the vision that Daniel has here in Daniel 10. You can flick over to Revelation chapter 1 if you'd like to. You can just listen to this if you'd prefer. In Revelation 1, 13 to 16, John says, I saw one like a son of man. Now listen to the similarities between what John sees and what Daniel saw. He was clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice like the roar of many waters. His face like the sun shining in full strength. After John receives this revelation of Christ, he says that he fell down at his feet as though dead. And that is very similar to what happens Daniel when he sees the glory of Christ in verses 8 and 9, Daniel says, back in chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, when he saw the vision, my strength drained, and I fell down on my face to the ground. So this initial vision that Daniel sees brings Daniel to an awareness that he is in the presence of the holy. This was a priestly vision, one dressed in linen, the garments of a high priest. It was a vision of a royal figure, one draped in a sash of gold. It was a vision of a glorious one with a face like lightning, eyes like flaming torches, legs like bronze, stable and strong. A vision of one whose voice is simply majestic, like the sound of a multitude. It's as if God is saying, Daniel, before you understand this vision of the difficulties of life in a fallen world, here's something you need to set before you, a big vision of the holiness of the commander of heaven's armies. We all come into church this morning in different places. We have different needs. We've had different experiences over this past week. But however you've come this morning, there's one thing that every single one of us need more than anything else today as we look out on the challenges of our lives and the challenges of life in a fallen world, what every single one of us needs above everything else is we all need a bigger vision of the power and the glory and the majesty of God. 
We need to turn our eyes upon Jesus to look full in his wonderful face so that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. John Owen, that English Puritan, has said, it is by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we are spiritually edified and built up in this world. For as we behold his glory, the life and power of faith grow stronger and stronger. What does it mean to behold the glory of Christ? Well, it is to think on the glory of the person of Christ. For example, we meditate on the truth that in the book of Revelation, Jesus is not just called a lamb who was slain, he is also called the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Son of God is not just meek, he is mighty. Sometimes we can be misled by some of the representations in movies about the Gospels, when Jesus is always floating around in a white robe with straightened hair and he looks very effeminate. This is the Jesus whom the demons saw and said, do not torture us before the appointed time. They were afraid of the Son of God and his wrath. This is the Jesus who is depicted in Revelation 19 as the rider on the white horse whose name is faithful and true. In righteousness, we are told there in Revelation that he judges and makes war on God's enemies. His eyes are like a flame of fire and the armies of heaven follow him as he leads out on the white horse. What a vision the book of Revelation gives us of Christ, the mighty Christ. And here's what I think we're to do as we look at this vision that opens Daniel chapter 10. We're just to step back for a moment and say, this is our shepherd. This is our commanding officer. This is our mighty Christ who says, I will be your shepherd. He leads us in the battle for faithfulness in a fallen world. He strides out before us. And he says, follow me, and I will make you into what I want you to be. Just follow me. Keep your eyes on me. Follow me through all the undulating contours of life in a fallen world. Follow me. I'll lead you through the shadowy valleys. I'll lead you through the ups. I'll lead you through the downs. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. That's our commanding officer. And that is the vision we are to have set before us. I have set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand, so I will not be shaken. The battle belongs to this Lord. So in the battle to remain faithful, you need to have a big vision of your commanding officer. Don't shrink the mighty Christ down to less than what he is. Hold that vision of the mighty Christ before you continually. Lesson two. In the battle to remain faithful, we need to recognize the spiritual nature of the battle we are involved in. 
In verse 10, after this grand opening vision, we read of an angelic helper coming to Daniel to help him back on his feet. In fact, the rest of this chapter is the effort of the angels to get Daniel back on his feet after this overwhelming vision. As this angel ministers to Daniel, we get a profound insight into the nature of the spiritual conflict that rages on behind the conflicts of this world. This is striking. Verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me. This is after Daniel's totally overwhelmed with the vision of the glory of Christ. Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I've been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Now you could ask for a moment here, hang on now, if from the moment Daniel started praying, this angel was dispatched, why did it take him three weeks to get to Daniel? Is that how long it takes to get from heaven to earth? So that if you're sending an Amazon parcel, you say, dispatch three weeks? No, the answer comes for the delay in verse 13. Look again, verse 13, really carefully. The angel continues, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia, and I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Now, What is the angelic messenger telling Daniel here? He says that he was initially dispatched, but then he encountered en route another angelic figure, a fallen angel, one who we're told is associated with the Persian kingdom who stood against God's purposes. This angel tells Daniel, the fallen angel, he and his henchmen, They sought to hinder me from bringing you spiritual insight from God for 21 days. But then, he says, one of the chief angels, Michael, he came to help me because I was outnumbered all alone with these powerful spiritual rulers over the kingdom of Persia. But Michael's reinforcement led to my liberation. And now I've made it to you to share this vision and give you insight into it. Wow. It's like the curtain's just being pulled back a little so that we can actually see for a moment into some of the unseen spiritual realities that are going on behind the conflicts and difficulties of this world. When you come to something so sensational as this, It's good, again, to step back for a moment and just make some observations. I have three I want to make. First, this stunning section of God's Word seems to indicate that there are fallen angels that we cannot see who are assigned territories over which they work hard to hinder God's people and people in general 
from receiving spiritual insight and help. I'll say that again. This section seems to indicate that there are fallen angels that we cannot see who are assigned responsibility over certain territories in the world. And over those territories, they work hard to hinder God's people and people in general from receiving spiritual insight and help. Satan and his emissaries are at enmity with the kingdom of God and the progress of the gospel in the world. And here we get a glimpse in to see that they are actively working to hinder God's kingdom progress and work in the world. That's the first observation I think we can draw from this text. Observation two. We see the battle reflected in this text is a spiritual battle for spiritual revelation and insight. Notice the angel's mission in verse 14 is to give Daniel spiritual understanding of God's will and ways and what he should expect as he continues to live life in this fallen world. Now we know that this is the nature of the spiritual battle we face as Christians because of what we read in other places in Scripture. The nature of spiritual warfare, it's a battle for insight, spiritual insight and understanding. So in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, for example, we read, the God of this world, referring to Satan and his emissaries, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan and his emissaries are actively working to hinder spiritual insight coming to humanity. How does God break break through and change that situation? We know this, by the power of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 4, the apostle Paul explains this. He says, we proclaim Christ Jesus as Lord... And God sends the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to open blind and blinded eyes. God who said, let there be light, has shone his light into our hearts so that we may see the light of the glory of the gospel of God in the face of Christ. So let's just for a moment think of how we could apply this to our own setting. We can deduce from this passage that there may well be an organized group of angels from the kingdom of darkness working to hinder gospel insight and progress in Belfast. That seems to be what the text says. Their strategies are legion, stir up the troubles, make religion the problem to turn people off. Oh, don't talk about religion. That's been all the problem in this country. Lure people away through lies and deception, entertainment, various other means, divide churches, sow seeds of disunity, break down marriages, ruin evangelistic efforts. You know, this passage is given so that we won't be unaware of the reality of the spiritual conflicts that rage on behind the conflicts of this world. And we must always remember who the real enemy is. And some of you have heard me use this illustration before, but I want to use it again because it's fitting at this point. 
Some of you know um, I love to read, and uh, not just theology, I love to read novels as well, and I really devoured uh, the Hunger Games books, if they can be classed as novels. The movies were great too. I think it was in the second uh, movie, second book, um, where there is a situation, and I'll explain it for those who don't know what the Hunger Games is all about. The situation in the second movie is that there are a bunch of wealthy people, essentially, who live in a place called the capital. And they have a load of people who are poor and in slavery. And the wealthy people get the poor people, and they select a group of about 12 of them, and they put them into this big enclosed dome called the arena. And it's all televised so that the rich people can look on as the 12 in the arena fight for survival to the death. If you think of the old Roman Empire, the Colosseum, when the crowds would gather to be entertained as the gladiators fought to the death. That's kind of, um, uh, Hunger Games is like a recapitulation of the Roman Empire in a sense. So you have this scene in the movie where the, the slaves are all there in the arena fighting uh, to the death for survival. And you have those who are wealthy looking on. But there's this very powerful scene where the, the, the sort of chief uh, hero, Katniss Evergreen, isn't that it? She, she stands there and there's this guy, Finnick, uh, who's like her enemy, and he, she has her arrow pulled back. She has a bow and arrow. She pulls it back and she's about to let it fly to kill this guy, Finnick. Only in that moment, he puts his hand up and he says, Katniss, remember who the real enemy is. And what he was saying was essentially, remember, Katniss, I'm not your enemy. It's those who've put us here. They're the real enemy. And what happens then is those in the arena, they start to work together to break out of the dome and to take on those who have overruled them in the capital. It's a powerful story. But that line that Finnick said to Katniss in that moment when he stood with his hand up and he said, remember who the real enemy is, that helps me continually in the spiritual battle for faithfulness in the world. So for example, if someone insults me and I feel really tempted to be bitter against them. See that line, remember who the real enemy is. Not the person in front of you, but the spiritual forces that are trying to fill your heart with bitterness to ruin your walk with God. So in church division, when someone divides or there's a fight in a church, I just want to say to that church, remember who the real enemy is. It's not each other. It's the one behind who tries to divide and break and destroy and ruin. So right now, if you're in a live situation where there's someone you're really struggling with, you're tempted to be bitter, to withhold forgiveness, and you, you just feel hatred in your heart, remember who the real enemy is. It's not the person. Though they may have wronged you. I'm not saying they're innocent. They may have sinned against you. They may have wronged you. But see the conflict behind the conflict, the unseen spiritual forces that are trying to fill your heart with things that are displeasing to God. Remember who the real enemy is. This can help you in the battle for faithfulness so that you're not filled with bitterness and unforgiveness and, and then end up with fights and divisions in church. Remember who the real enemy is. That's what this section calls us to remember. In the mess we see as we look out on this world, as we look out in our families and our relational issues, 
and the stresses and strains that we see, remember who the real enemy is. The kingdom of darkness at enmity with mankind, trying to block mankind from gaining spiritual insight and revelation. And let's remember also who the real enemy of Great Vic is. As we see gospel progress and kingdom advancement, there will be those unseen spiritual forces actively working to try and block the progress of the kingdom in this church. Trying to find any little chink, a door that is left open through bitterness and unforgiveness and relational enmity so that they can just rush in and ruin us. And so we pray, O Lord, protect us. So listen, let's get back on track here for a moment. I'm in the middle of unpacking three observations from these verses that give us a glimpse into this spiritual conflict behind the conflicts in this world. We've seen that this section seems to indicate that there are fallen angels assigned territories over which they work to hinder the progress of the gospel. We've seen that the battle for spiritual revelation and insight, that's the nature of the battle. And then just third observation briefly, heaven's host, as in God's angels, are here to help us in several unseen ways. This is amazing. In verses 13 to 14, we read of angels warring to get revelation to Daniel. Heaven's armies fighting to get God's message to Daniel. In verses 15 to 21, a passage I'm not going to have much space or need to unpack just now, what we see essentially is the angels strengthening Daniel, encouraging Daniel, and ministering to Daniel. In verse 20, they speak of going to war again against the prince of Persia and the rising prince of Greece, an ongoing spiritual conflict in the unseen realm. There is a level of activity going on in the unseen realm that perhaps is even more important than the activity going on in the seen realm. We know little of it. But see the little moments in Scripture where the curtain is pulled back and we're given glimpses into that spiritual realm They're all given to encourage us, all without exception. So for example, 2 Kings 6, you've got this incredible passage where the king of Syria, do you remember it, has, he's so frustrated because he keeps making these plans against the Israelites, but the prophet Elisha has such spiritual wisdom and insight, prophetic insight, that he keeps unveiling the plots of the king of Syria and they're thwarted. And the the advisors to the king of Syria say, oh, it's as if the prophet Elisha, he hears the very thoughts of the king in his own bedroom. And so the king says, right, that's enough. Let's send the full army. And uh, they're in Dothan, I think that was the name of the place. Let's send the full army to surround Elisha. We'll arrest him, bring him in. We'll sort him out. And so all the king's horses and all the king's men, they all gather around, all surround this, this one city where this wee man, Elisha's hiding. Oh, he's not even hiding. He's just there dwelling. And um, Elisha's servant goes out in the morning. You can imagine waking up and like, oh, goes out to the city walls. And he's like, whoa. And he sees all this army of the king of Syria all around him. And he runs to Elisha in an absolute panic. He says, My, master, 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 the, the king of Syria and all his forces are here just to get you. And what does Elisha do? 
He prays, oh Lord, open his eyes that he can see. And we read there in 2 Kings 6, So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, a mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And Elisha says, oh, there are more with us than with them. I just, see if I'm sitting there right now, I'd be saying, hallelujah, praise the Lord. That is such an encouraging word. That is a little glimpse to give you a sense that there is an army behind us that we know nothing about. Or Hebrews 1.14, little glimpse in the book of Hebrews, are angels not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So think of all those who are going to inherit salvation. Christians, there are angels sent out by God to minister to help. That's what you see in the last quarter of this passage, angels serving and ministering to Daniel in his need. Or Matthew 26, 53, do you remember when Jesus is being arrested in Gethsemane and the disciples jump in to try and stop it? And what does Jesus say? Do you not think that I can, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Heaven's forces can be dispatched in a moment and these, this little battalion of guards, they would have nothing against the mighty angels. All of those glimpses there to tell us. In our battle for faithfulness in a fallen world, we have an incredible unseen army ministering to us and helping us. Loads of things we may never even see until glory. It's incredible. So, are two lessons so far from Daniel chapter 10. In the battle to remain faithful, we need a big vision of our commanding officer. Two, in the battle to remain faithful, we need to recognize the spiritual nature of the battle. That's all those observations. Now, thirdly and finally, in the battle to remain faithful, we need to know our role in the battle. We are not called to be passive observers in the spiritual battle for faithfulness. We are called to active engagement. And again, if I was sitting where you are right now, I'd probably be screaming and really, yeah, tell me how to do that. Well, I'm going to try to tell you how to do that. Very simple. Through prayer and the Word of God. Prayer is far more significant than you have ever realized. In verse 12 we read that the angelic messenger tells Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Daniel's prayer triggered the release of spiritual revelation from God through the angelic messenger. This, in turn, triggered a spiritual conflict in the unseen realm. And eventually, the revelation came to Daniel. I love how Dale Ralph Davis put this in his commentary. Daniel prayed and angels went to war. Just let that sink in for a moment. What's going on when you pray? I tell you, this has blown me away this week. In my study, I've been praying. I don't think I've ever had faith to pray like it, or perhaps insight, hopefully. I've just been sitting there going, Lord, 
just send the angels on Sunday morning to protect us all at Great Vic from any unseen bad angels who would want to hinder these people getting spiritual insight. Let your angels protect it and let the insight come. And you're sitting there saying, Lord, there's a war in Ukraine. Send your angels to, to, to work. Do something, Lord. And you're sitting there going, when we pray, angels go to war. I'm telling you, prayer is far greater than we realize. There are spiritual weapons we have been given to take part in the spiritual battle for the progress of the kingdom. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, we read, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So we're never speaking of any kind of physical holy war in this world. Christians do not go to physical war like that. Our war is spiritual. There are two spiritual weapons we're given to engage in the battle, prayer and the Word of God. And we see this so clearly in the New Testament equivalent of Daniel 10, Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And the passage goes on to make sure that we are clothed in the armor of the gospel. But this passage speaks of two offensive weapons we are given for spiritual warfare. Verse 17, you are given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And verse 18, prayer. You're to pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer, supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul believes that's how Christians engage in spiritual warfare. Prayer and promises. So in light of that, what I want to do is just close with two application points in light of what we see. First, I've already touched on this, but I just want to make it really concrete and really crystal clear. Work to expand your own vision of prayer. When we pray, we pray to the God who causes kingdom to, king, kingdoms to rise and fall. A God who can at once call on legions of angels to accompany his beleaguered saints. Prayer triggers divine revelation. It releases divine resources. It moves God's sovereign arm. Remember what Jesus taught us to pray. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Therefore, go? No. Therefore, first pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers to the harvest field. Isn't it amazing to think we can pray and angels can be sent to war? So expand your vision of prayer. Second, keep working to learn how to effectively wield the sword of the Spirit. Learn how to handle your Bible. Jesus taught us this certainly by his example in the Gospels. Passages like Matthew chapter 4 when three times he was attacked by Satan. And remember, it was all about his identity. Seems to be where Satan always goes right at the heart of our identity. You're not really a Christian, or you're not really this, or you're not really forgiven, or you know you're really a rubbish person inwardly, and everyone knows, you know, all this stuff that Satan does to go after your identity. That's what Satan does to Jesus. So they say you're the Son of, man, the son of God. If so, prove it. Causing Jesus to undermine his identity. 
Three times, did God really say? Did God really say? Did God really say? And how does Jesus meet that threat? Each time, it is written. It is written. It is written. Modeling for us how to wage spiritual warfare and wield the sword of the Spirit as it has been given to us. And so if you are attacked and discouraged, and these attacks and discouragements come in many subtle and not so subtle ways, often just deep, turbulent thoughts and feelings within, if Satan tries to oppress you, you can just say, it is written. Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he's put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the gospel, in the cross. When you're intimidated, you can say, it is written, he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. When you're feeling overwhelmed with the reality of the call to be faithful in a fallen world, you can say, it's written, there are more with us than with them. It's written, it's written no weapon formed against me will prosper. When despairing over the state of the world, you can say, it's written, the battle belongs to the Lord. I can rest in him. And it's that last word, the battle belongs to the Lord, that I want to close on. Because it is a promise that gives us hope and it is a promise that takes us back to the opening part of Daniel chapter 10, that big vision of our commanding officer. In Ephesians 6.10 we read, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then we get the unpacking of the call to be ready in gospel armor to wage good warfare. First, our call is always to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then, knowing that big vision of our strong commanding officer, we go into the world and we strive to be faithful in all the ways we've been instructed to it in this passage. So I just want to encourage you this morning, in the battle to be faithful in a fallen world, your greatest need is that bigger vision of God. And when you nestle in behind your strong commanding officer, you do what you can to be faithful, to recognize the nature of the spiritual battle, to recognize the power of prayer and the word of God in the fight. And you never shrink down your vision of what you can do in your prayer closet. Because when you pray, angels can go to war. So let me just ask you these closing questions. Have you got a clear vision of your commanding officer? Because if you don't, you won't be prepared for the battle for faithfulness in a fallen world. Are you dressed and ready for battle? Have you realized over this past week that you're in a war? Or have you totally forgotten? Let us be alert. Be dressed for action. Prepared and ready as we go into this week so that we can play our part in the battle for faithfulness and the progress of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, it seems that one of Satan's very clever strategies is to just sing us to sleep. A sleeping army is not a vigilant army. And so we pray this morning that this section of your word, Daniel chapter 10, will have been a wake-up call to us. 
All of this an introduction to the vision that we're going to see next week, we trust. Preparing Daniel to understand and have spiritual insight to the nature of the conflicts we go through as Christians. And I pray, Lord, that recognizing this today and recognizing ultimately that our battle belongs to the Lord, our commanding officer, and that one day that commanding officer will come again and finally trample all enemies under his feet. I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged and that we would go into this week dressed and ready for war and that when we get down on our knees and pray and when we read our Bibles, we would recognize that this is what you've given to us so that we can wage a good warfare in the world. Oh, Lord, help us not to go forward inadequately prepared. And thank you that this passage is here to help us. And so as we respond now, and we even think of the saving benefits of Jesus as we come to have communion together, we just pray that you'd keep ministering to us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to uh, sing together as a response the first couple of verses of O Church Arise, this call to the church to rise up and be dressed ready for the spiritual battle we're called to. After the two verses, please do take a seat, and then we're going to share communion together. If you're here and you know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you're in good standing with your local church, you're welcome to share in this meal of remembrance for, uh, with us. Um, on the table on the entrance, there are the elements, the bread and the cup there. If you come in and you're planning to have communion and you forgot to collect those, during the first couple of verses of the song, you can just nip back, get what you need, so that we're all settled and ready to share around the Lord's table together. But for now, let's stand together and sing. Thank you.